Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmidt, Swanee and Clarkie visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. All right. How are we all? Very well. Wonderful. Hi, Schmitty. Yeah. Hi, Clarky. And hi, hi Carla. Well. Hi, Schmitty. Uh, it's great to see you again. Of course it is. It's always great to see you guys. Um, how uh, was your week then? Mm, not bad. I've been having a bit of a back-to-school week with my kids, so... That's always a great relief for any mother, I'm sure they'd agree, or father, I guess, to get the kids out of the house. So all Getting good here. the swing of it. What about you guys? Oh, yeah, I'm loving that. Thank you very much. Yep. What about you, Clarkie? Oh, we had a lovely week last week uh, down at the tennis. Yeah, and now we're just, this is our first week back at work. They're uneventful. Yeah. And Schmitty, Schmitty? what have you been up to? Well, to be honest... I always feel a little depressed at this time of year. Um, you know, the official summer ended in February. Um, I always think uh, March is a kind of bonus summer month for Melbourne and, you know, that's gone. So I can feel a bit down um, because the weather's going to recede very quickly here. But Tony and I went to the houseboat this week and had a beautiful weekend. Um, and it made me remember when Tony used to fear trips to the boat alone with me and no TV. He, he thought of his trips to the houseboat as kind of a, a series of enormous nut punches. <laughs> <laughs> However, oh, now we've got a super duper Tony. new Wi Fi booster and can stream Netflix, and most importantly for poor Tony, watch his precious Arsenal scratch their way to the top of the Premier League where he thinks they belong. He really seems quite keen to go to the boat nowadays. And Anyway, um, from looking back on the week, uh, let's move to the here and now and the really important, what are we drinking today? Best you start, Clarky. Okay then. So after our big week last week, we've decided we're going to jump on the wagon, Stuart and I, and... Um, I'm going with the Mount Franklin, lightly spritzed with a splash of lime. Oh! Delightful. Can you believe it? <laughs> and you, Swanee? Oh, oh, my God. Now I feel the pressure. Well, I'm not jumping on any wagon because I've always got one foot on, one foot off, as you well know. Um, and because it's the middle of the afternoon and I'm still going to do school pickup, I'm, I'm dry, so I'm on the... <laughs> what have I got today? Diet Coke. Not very exciting. What about you, Schmidt? I hope you can hold up. The part of the trial by wine bargain. What are you uh, drinking? Much as I find that troublesome, I'm going to give it my very hardest <laughs> try. I'm drinking this. This is a, a sparkling wine from Limoux, which is better than champagne, A, because it's cheaper than champagne, and B, because they actually invented the stuff 250 years before the champagne region invented it. So remember that, Limoux. Wow. Um, and, and if Where is that? Is it in France? Yeah, L-I-M-O-U-X. I say Limou as if I know oh. my French pronunciation, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I may well not do. I think they'd be right. Um, 
but it's great stuff. There are there are a few wines that come from that region, and nearly all of them are are, are somewhere between great and and very palatable. So that's what Excellent. I'm drinking. Um, and in fact, Limu is my second favorite drink of all time. It really is. Wow. And what was your first one? What's your first favorite, Schmitty? Oh, oh, that's my homemade damson gin. Ah, of course it is, darling. Of course it is. Um, can't get enough Good of that. choice. <laughs> Anywho. And we were spoiled a couple of weeks back to have a taste of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're ready to introduce ourselves? Yes. Okay. Let's. Yep. I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. And I'm Clarky. And together we are. Trial by, by wine. wine. Okay, everybody. Would you like to hear my story of crime through the lens of wine? It's called. Yes, <coughs> please. <coughs> Absolutely. <coughs> what have you got for us, Dal? <coughs> 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 You're right. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I swear to God, I've had this. Frog in my throat the whole time we were doing the intro there and it's almost like I sounded like someone else. It's bizarre because, you know, I've had a few uh, chest infections but they've never sounded make me sound like I'm a cockney before. So that was interesting. <laughs> All right. Maybe it's one of those things where, you know, people here in different, um, they've had like brain injury. Oh, you do sound better. <laughs> Let me try. <laughs> <coughs> oh. Oh, that's much better. Wow, I really noticed how your voice changed, Schmitty, when you did it, so I thought I'd give it a crack. And you're not going to believe it. Not only do I sound better, our shitty little sparkling mineral waters have turned into fruit tangles from Bilson, so we're now Woo! having vodka. Woo-hoo! Woo! We're all back ah, as we should. All is restored. Back. All is restored. Oh, all is yes. restored. Oh. Like, like I slipped into peasant world. I thought I must have had COVID for a minute there. Peasant world. <laughs> okay, with this being a special April Fool's edition of our show, I thought I'd liven things up a bit today with a story about Ooh. fooling people. No murder or violence. Ooh. Sorry. Or for some, oh, a I'm, nice I'm, change. I'm, what? Yeah, yeah. Is there a crime at least? Oh, there's definitely crime. There's definitely crime. But uh, this is what I would like to think of. It's a bit of a palate cleanser. You know, it's the sherbet between murders and And rapes. And a (laughs) moose-moose. All right. So my sources are going to upset you. Why? Did you not use Lad Bible? No. You're right. You have upset me already. Not a single Lad Bible source. Got to stop. This has got to stop. I know. (laughs) How, How can you move away from serious stories and still hang on to reputable sources. <laughs> this is just gross negligence on your behalf. This is still a serious story. In fact, one of my sources is Gilbert King, who was writing for, get this, the Smithsonian.com magazine and is a one-time Pulitzer Prize winner. So I don't think I could get more reputable sources but than what, that, But what, Lad won't even publish his work? That's your problem. That's the, that's the problem. <laughs> Oh, all right. <laughs> don't, don't bring your reputable sources as a justification for what you've done. That's exactly what we're holding you accountable for. Oh, well, all right. Okay, okay. Well, you might feel better that uh, I actually, when I first came across this case, I found it on a website called mentalfloss.com, which is not quite lad Bible, but, you know, sounds a little bit more lowbrow than the Smithsonian. Just a little bit. Just a little Sorry bit. Sorry about that, yeah, mentalfloss.com. I don't know that they've ever been using the same sentence before. Mentalfloss.com and the Smithsonian. 
I'd like to congratulate the people at mentalfloss.com for uh, their credible work that may not be an equivalent to the Smithsonian, but it's obviously better for us. Well, well, Swanee and I anyway. (laughs) Apart from King, there are a few historians and biographers who have written extensively on the case, including Christopher Sanford and Jeff Mache, whose accounts have also helped in filling some of the details. So basically, you know, I found a lot of high-level stuff around this gentleman and then I found some really good deep... Um, and sorry, so before you continue, I've already got a question. You yeah. said this is a story about foolery. Is it yeah. foolery fooling or Tom foolery? No, it's not Tom No, it's not Tom foolery. It's about fooling people. Okay. Okay, good. All right. So as I was saying, apart from King, I've got a few other historians and biographers who've written extensively on the case, including Christopher Sanford and Jeff Mache, whose accounts have also helped in filling a lot of details because they wrote, I would say, quite uh, flowery uh, accounts of stuff, you know, kind of fictionalised some of it, but it was still interesting. So, Flowery as in the stuff you use to make bread or the um, stuff you put in a vase? I don't really understand the use of flowery. In the sense of literary kind of commentary, it's where they use lots and lots and lots of words to say what you could say in three, and that's why I don't write for a living because I'm not great at extensive descriptions. Is that like words. Scott Morrisonery? Yeah, yeah, you could call it that, or Boris Johnsonery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. 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 So many words, and I still don't know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it still makes no <laughs> yes, sense. Gotcha. Yeah. So this is exciting because this story takes us back in time, timey wimey machine, or timey whiny machine, as Paul likes to call it, and we're going back. Yes. To the Roaring Twenties. A time of prohibition, hey. racketeering, jazz, gin, and gangsters. I'm surprised you're not in fancy dress, really. No. I know. You I just had that. a thought, thinking, yeah. why did I not? Any chance? Why did I not dress appropriately? And but because we're not actually called? videoing ourselves. Oh, uh, the, the flapper with the like the Marcel wave. With the, that's like the, the song curl. from Keep Young and Beautiful. That's right, yeah, yes, yes. Wear a Marcel wave in your hair. <laughs> anyway. That's that, the one. That's so your musical interlude for the, for the show. Yep. Well, I don't know. There might be a few others. So that is... Um, well, the first one at least. Yeah. That's where we are, yeah. So we are in the 1920s. So Victor Lustig is the name that this person is most famously known by. However, some say his real name was Robert V. Miller and others say that was also one of his aliases. So who can say? But we do seem to be pretty sure he was born in Holstein, Bohemia in 1890. Is that Czech? Yeah. That's now the Czech Czech Republic, but at the time it was part of the... Been there with you once, my love, haven't I? Oh, Mm -hmm. we have indeed, we have indeed. Not to Holstein itself, but we've definitely been to lovely Prague, a beautiful city. Uh, okay, yeah, so um, oh, we Day had some days. good times. There were the days when I could leave uh, my state two years in counting. Not me, not counting at all. <laughs> two years I've been, two years I've been in this room. Oh, my God. And oh. not bitter about it. Not either. at all. Mate, two years I've been in this kitchen, I lady. I don't know if I'm bitter so much as I'm certainly mentally challenged by it. I'm sure of that, so I apologise for my mental health. But anyway, I digress. Sorry, darling. You're allowed. It's fine. So Hostein had a population of about 4,500 at the turn of the 20th century, and it's not far different now, to be honest, so it hasn't changed a great deal. But it was a fairly small place, but it wasn't a village in peasant world. So he told people he'd been born to a well-off family 
Although some historians tried to find records of him and can't find him in any records that still exist from the time. And as we will soon find out, he was a bit of a truth stretcher. So it's not easy to say for sure who the hell he was, <laughs> uh, what his early life was like. We only really get a handle on him in his late teens. But I'm going to call him Lustig. Truth stretcher. For the, um, <laughs> you started this off it all too professionally. Like, couldn't you go bullshitter or? <laughs> truth stretcher. <laughs> Truth, truth stretcher. Jesus, a con man. I think what you'll discover is he's yeah. so professional that you can't call him a bullshitter. So he was an inte- extremely intelligent. Using flowery words to describe him. <laughs> I'm a bit in love with him, to be honest. Oh, I've got to say, I've got a little bit of a crush. Oh, are guy. you? Yeah, right. Yeah. He's such Good a character, and um, he's five foot seven, so he's already off my list of possible cat people I would sleep with <laughs> because he's shorter than me. That's right. And we all know I'm heightest. Sorry about that. But apart from being short and... What if he stood on a chair? You can't stand on a chair all the time, can you? Cuban and heel? that's the problem. No. <laughs> Platforms, <Okay>. stilts. <laughs> uh, look, I don't want to get into it. I've got, I've got eight pages of notes and me going into my heightest, oh. you know, proclivities is not what we're here for today. I thought you were silently imagining whether or not, I thought that pause was about silently imagining whether or not it could actually work. I was going to say good for you for considering it. but I have considered it in the past. Um, JB, if you're out there, I considered it, but, you know, I'm heightest. It's my discrimination against you. Sorry about that. Anyway, moving right along. Bilzy, what did Bilzy have to do with it? No, different no, different person. Different JB. Yeah, different JB. He knows who he is. <laughs> but he's so gorgeous and he's so debonair and so wonderful. If only he'd been six inches Could taller. have been a bit of a reveal there for Bilzy. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't Bilzy. Sorry. Okay. I wonder how many Bilzies, how many JBs are going. She's talking oh. about me. Oh, no. The debonair, incredible. Oh, anyway, he knows who he is. Where was I? That was very distracting. All right, so he was a, this guy Lustig, not JB, although JB is also a very intelligent person. Lustig was an extremely intelligent youth, speaking at least five languages fluently and showing great promise as a young man. However, he was also a very naughty boy. He studied in Paris at the Sorbonne. He's not the messiah. He took up gambling when he was 19, and he was very good at it, by the way. He liked the ladies and this got him into trouble at times and was why he had a two-inch scar on the left of his face, which was a gift from a jealous boyfriend of one of his lady friends. So that's when he was like a teenager, a late teenager. He wasn't keen on university. His father had insisted that he goes to university and he was like, I don't really want to do it. And uh, going, harking back to some of our previous conversations about pedagogy, he preferred experiential learning. <laughs> I know, I can't help it. Did you did you just really just dr- drop the word ped? I can't even say it. Pedagogy. Oh my god! Look at you. Who works in education? Oh, I, pedagogy. Oh, that's just showing off. Is, that was my point. Is, 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 that science, is pedagogy related to Tamagotchi? Is it the science of no, teaching? No, not at all. Is that what it is? It's, no, yeah, yeah, pretty no, much. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, you're right. It's it's the science of teaching. You're right. Or it, it might. It's no, a it's, small little thing that you keep alive. It's I'm aware of somebody who's a director of it, and I thought his job was to teach teachers how to teach. Sorry, I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but 
He's no, in- that's right though. It's a, it's all about in- Is that right? Yeah, 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 because um there's a whole art form yeah. or there's a whole science I guess to instructional design. So how yes. do you design uh, you yeah. know, learning materials and uh, classrooms yes. and all the rest of it. Sorry, this is totally off piste, but that's that. I couldn't help myself but throw in the whole pedagogy you threw, thing. I you love that you. Shit that fills the head of you two. My God. You threw that little bomb in no, there. No, I love that you bit on it. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what it was a year ago. I just happened to know now. That's all. So I had to sort of. No, no, you, know, you, you, you are quite right. You're quite right. Don't worry. I start for. I reckon right. the first four years of working where I work now, I didn't know what pedagogy meant, but I do now. I still right. can't say it so, anyway. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I won't know what it is tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's all right. You don't need to. I'll, if, ever, if, if in doubt, give us a call. I'll tell you. All right. So anyway, he preferred to experience life. So he'd wander around and commit minor crimes. Mostly these were card tricks, street hustles, uh, you know, playing pool that sort of stuff but he really discovered that he had an incredible gift for the con and of course using his many languages and his brilliant brain he was really wasn't much for him to convince people to part with their cash and in January 1908 at the tender age of 18 he was arrested by the police in Paris following one of his snoozer cons so a snoozer con is basically where you book yourself into a hotel and snoozer con yeah a snoozer con is where you book yourself into a hotel, you pretend you have a lavish lifestyle or you're a p- particular kind of individual and you con people around you, the other guests basically. Did you make that term up or did it exist already? <laughs> no, 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 I, no, 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 I read that. I find them on smithsonian.com. Is it like a, <laughs> is, is it like a bed and breakfast? <laughs> But a snooze and No, con. no, it's no. No, he booked con. himself into really like top-notch hotels. An, an S&C as we like to call it. This is sort of like the beginning of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, isn't it? That's a snoozer. We're, well, yeah. I think actually um, some of the inspiration for that, Catch Me If You Can, yeah, this guy inspired a lot of yeah, those yeah. storylines. Yeah, he's, he's okay. uh, the Got king it. of the con, I think it was his moniker. King, mm. king of the con. So he goes into the Nemzetti Hotel and he checks himself in there and it was in France, uh, Paris, and he and he wears a schnazzy suit and he waxes his moustache and he poses as a well-bred young insurance company guy allegedly on a continental tour organised by his associates in London. He very kindly offered to act as a go-between for the wealthy ladies, taking their jewellery and having them professionally appraised. He charged a token fee because, you know, you don't work for nothing and gave them a little receipt saying the items would be returned in the morning. After introducing himself to an unsuspecting patron as, I love this, Earl Mountjoy, he took a Cartier Tutti Frutti necklace and matching earrings and told the owner that he hoped she might find time later in the spring to join him on his yacht as he cruised the French Riviera and hinting at a possible marriage. Sadly, for the young lady, she lost her jewels and her heart. Goodness. Or at least her dignity on that fateful day. So just to give you a bit of context, <laughs> so you can appreciate with the value of a Cartier Tutti Frutti necklace and um, uh, earrings, a 1930s Tutti Frutti bracelet sold at Sotheby's in 2020 for $1.3 million. And a 1928 bracelet, 
of the same uh, design Jesus. was sold in 2014 for $2.1 million. And they and even at the time they would have been extremely expensive items. And if you want to know, Carla, because I'm sure you do, they're they're right up my alley. Amazing. They were just a riot of cascading, precious, terribly colourful, you know, cascading jewels, the kind of thing I would That's what I was thinking of as well. I was was thinking, oh, Tutti Frutti, that was what I was thinking. must be the coloured gemstones at it. Mm. Lovely. Uh, I think they were originally. Schmitty, take them out of your alley and give them back to that poor lady who owns them. (laughs) Oh, seriously, if I had, you know, Jewelry worth a, a combined four million bucks. You wouldn't be seeing me here on this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, uh, with some, but you'd, you'd be sitting. You'd be sitting there in those jewels doing the. Podcast. And they certainly yeah. wouldn't be up your yes. alley. I'm not putting anything up my alley. This isn't exactly. Hotel Bangkok or whatever it was called. You was said they were right Hotel up your Bangkok? alley. Don't call me out on I that. I meant I was. I would. They're the kind. Bangkok. Bangkok Hilton. We know what you meant, but you said it. Oh, you, you people are so rude. Anyway. You can't take the words back. They're out don't there. Don't need to. Don't need to. They, the Tutti Fruity necklace is right up my alley, and by that I don't mean my vagina. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> With some money behind him and having to get away from the authorities, he decided to quit Paris for a bit and sail the seas on cruise liners. Now, I've been on a few cruises with Tony, Ooh. but I have a feeling that our experience on the P&O or celebrity ships weren't quite what Victor and his fellow passengers were um, experiencing. It's a, it was a different time, wasn't it? It was a different class of travel. It's yeah, a different yeah. time. Anyway. It was a point. It was a travel. We're not it was thinking a form Disney of transport. cruises. It yeah. wasn't a cruise. That's right. You're not going out doing it. Wasn't, wasn't yeah. Titanic? Well, yes, it was a bit more like Titanic, Paul. Not, it was, he wasn't, he wasn't on the water slide. He wasn't on the water slides. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. Or, or down at the disco. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. no, they got dressed and you sat formally for dinner and, you know, it was a, a more formal way of travel, yeah. And it was a really, really good place to find a mark. A mark? Yeah, yeah, a, a, you know, a mark, a, a victim, someone to to take the money off. So I think... Um, th- right. God, you use words that I just <sighs> no, don't no. get. Introductions. <laughs> so... I think the important point, though, is these cost about, you know, 2000 US in today's money. So he was investing money to be on these boats to meet people who he could then rob because his, his return on investment was going to be pretty good. It's massive, yeah. He was able to blend... Yeah, he was able to blend into society on the cruises, posing as a wealthy traveller and stinging unsuspecting, and this is again for you, Paul, marks along the way. Whilst, and by the way, I think I could be wrong, but I think Lustig, <laughs> I think Lustig actually coined the expression calling them a mark. Other people whose names aren't Mark. Oh, right. What about the Johns? Oh, no, sorry. That's a Are different you kind that's of person. an expression that most people should know? Mark, yeah. Everyone knows what a mark is. Yeah. Should most people know that expression, calling them a mark? Well, yeah. Carla, did you, you know, know what a mark is? was before I said it? Well, we're, 50, we're 50-50 on this yeah. podcast. No, we're not. We're sixty six thirty three. <laughs> yeah, but you, you two are a little bit more highbrow than us, I think. Yes. How? Stuart doesn't know what one is either. Carla so and I. I'm going. That's fifty fifty. Yeah, but you you represent one third. You two represent one third of the podcast. No, we're not half people. <laughs> you you heightest <laughs> elitist. 
<laughs> Whilst traveling Europe, here are a couple of his crimes. In February, Mark. no, no, crimes against Marks. Okay. In February 1909 in Vienna, posed as a hotel carpenter and installed a fake wall in a room that allowed him access to a guest's valuables from the other side. That's quite an effort. What? Hang on, can we explore that a little bit more? He posed as a hotel carpenter and installed a wall. A false wall. So that he could access um, so patrons' valuables. So that he could valuables. get yeah. to their jewels. Mm-hmm. The guy has got balls. And I will. I still don't get it. But was it like, did the wall have a false door or something in it? I don't know the details of this particular crime, <laughs> but but imagine this. Into the room. Imagine you've got a storage room, right? And uh, like a cloakroom. And your guests say, can I put my expensive stuff in here to be safe? And you say, no problem. And then someone comes along and installs a fake wall in it. No one happens to notice that the room has shrunk. But that allows him to have access so that he can take their valuables. Where do you even get the material for that on a cruise He's ship? He's not on the cruise ship. He's now in landlocked Vienna, correct? This is Vienna. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's in Sorry. Vienna at this See, point. He travels that's around. Why I'm so, that's why I'm so <laughs> amazed. I got so hung up on Mark, I completely missed that we weren't on a you cruise thought, anymore. You were like, <laughs> how did he get to Bunnings before he got on the cruise ship? He's walked in with a massive plank of wood, got some plywood and got his, got his materials. Right, ready to go. Where do you even find Don't that on a cruise Nothing. ship? This bloke Nothing is Nothing here to see, just a fake wall. Yeah, just wallpaper. a fake wall. I'm walking up the gangplank with. Oh, gangway, sorry. God, I've got a shit attention No, that span. was a little bit. Even I went, oh, hang on, now we're back in Vienna. Oh, we're, we're back on land. But, yes, we. Sorry. That's yeah, right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I should have said. Right. I did. I actually said whilst travelling Europe, here are a couple yeah, of his crimes. But yeah. anyway, so he gets off Paul the ship at the some boat. point. And then he. <laughs> yeah. Commits some crimes, he gets back on a ship, commits more crimes, gets off a boat. So the next one is April uh, 1911 in Budapest. He convinced a wealthy woman to give him money by claiming off a boat. Off the boat, Budapest, off the boat. (laughs) Budapest is a city. Convinced a wealthy woman to give him money by. There's no boats in Budapest. There are boats, but not cruise ships. There are, right down the Danube. I know. Yeah. Anyway, by claiming it was going to fund an orphanage. Now we're in London. Oh. Are we going to talk about whether he's on a boat in the Thames or we're going to accept that he's on dry land? Just checking. Before I, before I tell you this I'm just going to go one, with the fact that we're not going to be on boats anymore until you say it because otherwise you're going to lose your shit. <laughs> and whilst I'll think that's funny, it might not be for you. So let's just pretend that it's all on land now. It's on land. 1914 in London, he sold London Bridge for £2,400 by posing as a local authority worker seeking to raise funds. <laughs> I think I've heard of that before. I think I'm sure that you rings have. a bell. What? And I it's not one of his most famous, but yes. Who bought it? It rings a bell, yeah. Oh, I haven't got the details. I Who? think Americans. Didn't he sell I thought he sold it to Americans, what? but I'm not sure. There's some, you- yeah. That rings a bell, Schmidt. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but yeah, I think I feel like I've heard that. And before. I think even I could be wrong, wow. but I think yeah. he told them that they were buying. He told them it was London Bridge, but you know London Bridge is actually quite plain, and it's the other. What's the, the more ornate yes. tower, tower, tower bridge? bridge. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Tower yeah. Bridge. So they thought they were buying yeah. Tower Bridge, and they were actually 
bought, which they didn't really, they got swindled into thinking they bought London Bridge, which is the ordinary bridge anyway. And and was it before or after London Bridge <laughs> fell down? I don't know. I'm not sure. This was in uh, 1914, so I'm very happy for you to you or Stuart to do the research I would on assume when after Bridge the, fell the, down. I would assume after. No, I'm, I'm going to go with he sold them the London Bridge that had fallen down. But Quite possibly. But Tower Bridge. Quite possibly, yeah. Who cares about fact? No, exactly. He certainly didn't because he didn't own any of the things that he was selling to people. In uh, <laughs> 19... Well, neither did they by the sounds of it. <laughs> Not in the end, no, no. In early 1916 in London, he posed as... I, I personally like this one. Posed as a musical producer named Andre Dupre and convinced a Harley Street specialist, Cyril McClintock, to invest £500 in a West End show that never existed. That's my kind of guy, you know, just the theatre bit. And I think £500 at the time. Is that, is that when he had you? He had you. Oh, no, he had, he's, he's, just, he's just an impressive individual. You'll, and and you'll, you'll come to appreciate He didn't it. have you at hello, but he had you at some point in his story. Oh, I don't know. She was pretty impressed about the carpentry on the boat. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, was, I was more impressed def- that, about he that. He had you then, didn't he? That's when you were like, oh, hello. This guy, that is so 100%. Special. Yeah, yeah. But I, he also I do like someone who's a bit handy. You're right. The dirty um, yeah. truth stretcher. He's a truth stretcher for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He then settled in the USA, and we've got to assume that he travelled there by boat, but let's assume he gets off the boat for absolute point of clarity. So he's now on land. Did he commit any crimes on the boat? Possibly, but I haven't got them recorded here. So here we are over in the USA. Definitely installed a false wall. Probably, and on land. So one of his schemes in 1916 involved setting up his own church on the Manhattan waterfront and promising the congregation that the service would swell all hearts and souls with joy. Uh, That shit's been going on for millennia. Using a speech that had been given in the Polish city of Breslau and making a few amendments (laughs) of his own, he was able to impress the congregation so much they gave him $90. The modern equivalent is two and a half grand. As you might imagine, the poor never saw a cent of it. It went straight into his own pocket. What happened to the church? Oh, he just ran away. He, he, like he'd take the money, he'd disappear. He had over 47. Oh, he didn't actually build a church. No, no, no. He, he just... did not for 90 bucks, no. No, no, no. 1916. I was thinking that's bad return on investment. In 1916, there were a lot of this sort of travelling. Remember the other day I was talking about the um, crucifixion of Marguerite Peter and I was talking about the. Um... <laughs> you were? Not, not not casually. It was my. It was the story at the time. All oh, right. <laughs> was I drunk then? <laughs> Probably. Oh, do you, do you, maybe. Maybe you've forgotten. I do. I, I, yes, no. I was drunk, and I do yes. recall now. Yeah, she yeah. was in the upstairs place that they boarded up. She was in Switzerland, mm-hmm. right? I recall. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, right. I remember. You, I remember you casually mentioning her. <laughs> That's right. Just casually. <laughs> I made a reference to a really good series. Uh, which is a retelling of Perry Mason. It's sort of the same period in America's timeline and there are a lot of kind of travelling around people who are praising God and having moments. And so churches weren't specifically, you know, buildings. They were congregations of people. Buildings. Who were all looking for for 
Because remember, this is towards the end of World War One, leading into the the Spanish flu plague. So it's not a great time. So people were like, so they wanted the Lord to fix their gimpy leg. That's right. Yeah, they they were looking for something external to themselves to make them feel better. They were wanting to get out of WA. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just it's a ripe opportunity. To get me through. Well, <laughs> all I'm going to tell you, you need to be careful because Swanee, someone might come along and rip you off ninety bucks if you're not careful. Oh, so, I'm right for it because you know you're you're open to it. Oh. All right. Yes. So, well, in America, he set up a fake off. You're right track for bet. it, as in you're happy to give them the ninety bucks. If it means she gets out of WA, she'll give them ninety bucks. I'm in a vulnerable state. Yeah. No, you're not. Sorry, you're in a perfectly good state. We're in a vulnerable state. <laughs> yeah, Carla, just wait a while. <laughs> You'll see winter again one day. Winter is coming, don't worry. Yes. Yep. Well, in America, he set up a, f- a fake off-track betting shop. Gamblers are easy marks for con men because they're already prepared to spend money on the chance of making more. This time he called himself Count von Kessler, a displaced European is aristocrat which actually wouldn't have been that odd given it was after World War I, and would convince a wealthy individual to visit the premises to place a bet. He was so committed to his craft that he would fill the room with actors playing employees and furnish it as if it was an actual betting shop. And it's a theme in many of his cons that he was prepared to spend that decent outlay, like I was saying before, about even just booking the travel, uh, which actually cost him quite a lot of money because he knew that he was going to get a good return on investment from whoever he was stealing from. And, you know, in this day and age, I might call that entrepreneurial if it weren't a little bit criminal, a little bit, quite criminal. <laughs> anyway, and he even had people in the next room giving a live broadcast. And, and if you had a speech impediment, you might call it entrepreneurial. <laughs> I know you love saying that. Because, you know, it's it's good to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> It is good to be an entrepreneur. I've never quite managed it. It's hard to say entrepreneurial. That's a. He even had being an entre. I can't say it now. You've said that so many times at me. Wanker. Being a wanker. wanker. (laughs) That's right. He even had someone in the next room giving live broadcasts to make it sound like real races were being called over the wireless. So, like, he wow. went to a really significant uh, effort to set up his cons. No, really committed. This is this is why I have a little bit of a crush on him. I just think he's a bit special. And so it's not the bit about the play that the Broadway play or the West End play that he raised money for. It's this bit now. No, no, that was no. It's 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 his dedication to his cause. It's 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 his okay. determination. It's his planning. It's his attention to detail. He's got excellent execution. Like, you know, he's just, he's very good at what he does. And he really takes his job seriously. You know, like, I, I respect a man who takes his job seriously. I think there's people who are this sort of calibre of con man or woman or whatever. Mm. When it, it is quite remarkable the attention to detail required to be able to pull something off. So if you do watch, catch me if you can. But this is just reminding me, have you ever seen the movie with Ben Affleck called Argo? Yes. Yes. No. <laughs> Now, I had only, maybe in the last six months, I saw a documentary which was about the film. So it was the real the real scenario in Tehran when they, I think they were American, um, you know, consulate or um, members had been 
They had to hide in the, the in the Canadian embassy, I think. And to get them out, Ben Affleck's character came in and he it was sort of staged his thing. And they used sort of the cover of a production company, a movie production company. And again, it was all the detail they had to go into to pretend that all the other actors and other people around him set him up to be able to, you know, sort of complete the cot, as it were. And it's a similar thing, you know, you can't do it independently. If you, you're staging it, that's where the genius sort of comes into it. It's not it, just you on your own. It does, but I think it also increases the risk because, you know, you're, you're, right. you're, you're yeah. booking all these people to play roles or do various things. Yeah. And that, that for me is what's so interesting about it. It's not like a card trick that you do on your own in Conscarpa. You, no. You're leaving a trail and yet this man managed to avoid, I think it was something like 40 different times he was arrested and he either mm. escaped prison or just talked his way out of them. Like it, was, it was really very, very extraordinary in that respect. In February 1918, he swindled gambler and boxing promoter George Tex Rickard out of 500 bucks, which was thousands in today's money, in a poker game after bribing the dealer and rehearsing his poker face. Ma, 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 poker face, ma, ma, poker face. Ah, uh, ma, ma, ma. Gaga. She's got a little whiffy. Oh. <laughs> He did this in his hotel room for hours and hours in advance. So he he. What did he do in his hotel room for hours and hours? He practiced so his, his poker face, his papa poker face. Everything wasn't all business, though, for this guy. On a personal note, in 1919, he married a nice young lady named Roberta Norrit, and like all good husbands of the time, was aware he needed to support his wife and bring home the bacon. However. Even though he had a wife and would soon have a daughter to support, he still had an eye for the ladies and is alleged to have had several affairs and be linked to loads of famous and infamous women of the time. So on that front, I'm not in love with him. I think dirty rat. But on the whole conning stuff, I think he's quite impressive. So whilst business was good in the early 20s, he came up with a scheme that, when you think about it, really stretched the imagination. He devised a literal money-making machine, which he claimed would print money. So he'd book into a swanky hotel, outlay good money to, re- to run his scam, and would identify a, for you, Clarky, mark. <laughs> he'd then have dinner with them. A Deutschmark. Buy them with booze. Yeah, they could be German, possibly. Yes, yes. Uh, ply them with booze, send up the food, uh, sorry, spend up on the food, like so, you know, lavish meal. And when they were nice and soft and pliable in terms of suggestion, he would invite them up to a private room or into a private room to have a look at his amazing machine and know that is not a euphemism. <laughs> He'd take a $100 bill from his wallet insert it into a slot, again, not a euphemism, in the machine, turn a lever and the bill would be pulled through into the box. At the other end, he'd put a sheet of bill-sized white linen paper, you know, like quite good quality paper, and then he'd do some jiggery-pokery, turn some dials and move stuff and then say, it takes six hours for this to work, so let's go back to the bar. And, of course, it was just theatrics to heighten the anticipation for the mark. So the, the guy's like, oh, six hours, we've got to wait. And then they'd go off and they'd drink more and they'd have a great time and they'd return six hours later and to see how it was going. And he'd move the dials again, he'd crank the lever, and lo and behold, two $100 bills would come out. And they were real. Six hours' work. 
I know it doesn't feel like a lot, but a hundred dollars at the time was a really like a significant yeah. amount of money. Yeah. yeah, like you know we don't have thousand dollar bills, but a hundred dollars yeah, bought you a lot in yeah, uh, nineteen whatever. Yeah. Anyway, and they were real bills. Of course, he planted them at the start and all the rest of it. Yeah. So these idiots who <laughs> saw this thought, "Oh wow, this is amazing! I, I want to get me some of this." They would pay up to get this. This is this is the bit that kills me. So please remember this where we're doing sentencing. Thirty thousand bucks, which is the equivalent of eight hundred thousand dollars for one God. of these machines. They weren't short for money. They would buy the machines. Mm. Oh God! I thought you were going to say they'd give him a grand and say double it for me. Yeah. No, no, they'd buy the machine thinking this is grouse. I can print my own money. If you could afford to spend eight hundred thousand dollars on a on a money printer at the time, like they were megged. They didn't yeah. need to that's be doing impressive. this. Again, just it is, yeah. So that's fine. No worries. He would go and knock one of these machines because they were just a box with some dials and a lever. I'm like, they were just bullshit. <laughs> just a printer, wasn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, it works. wasn't even a printer. It didn't even print. It was just a box <laughs> with two slots, some dials and a lever that that just moved one thing to one place to another. So he would make one of those and then he'd give it to the person. And the the fact that he built in that whole six-hour period was absolute genius because he'd give them the box and they'd be like rush off and they'd start it and they had to wait six hours, which gave him tons of time to to piss off. Ah, very clever. He's clever. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, this is where the crush comes in, not the adultery. No, 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 no. But on on the smartness, very good. So, and of course, he never got reported for this because, because the, people were so greedy and so embarrassed Feeling that like they got pawned to this level. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, and illegal because you're obviously not allowed to. Yeah, you're not allowed to counterfeit, counterfeit money. money. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was perfect in that respect. Mm-hmm. He found someone who was, you know, sleazy enough to want to be able to fall for it and think, you know, I'll, I'll, I've got a lot of money, but hell, I want even more. So you get the perfect Absolutely right. Mark. And- and, yeah, and to be honest, that one. Yeah. in a lot of ways, his greatest skill was identifying the mark, yeah. finding the right person yeah. to hit with these. It, like Who's got enough but greedy enough to, you know. He just more, clearly um, could read people so well. So here are some more of his capers and his um, <laughs> capers. Capers, capers and his catalogue of cons. Crazy antics. Capers. Crazy catalogue of cons, as I like to call it. <laughs> And these are short versions and we're all on land still. Got it. Yep. In August 1922 in Cape May, New Jersey, using the alias Count Cockham. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. Come on. Jeez. It's probably not pronounced how like that. How could you take him seriously? Wouldn't you be like the Earl of Cockham? He just is like a Count yeah. Cockham. <laughs> he, he set up a stand and pretended to communicate with the dead. Which, by the way, is a pretty standard con. In fact, Carla, how much of the uh, stuff we were told when we went to similar countless sticks back in the day came true? I was just thinking about that the other day, how almost nothing any psychic has ever told me has actually come to pass. No, seriously? I was thinking about it. (laughs) Shut up. I was thinking about it in the context of this story and I was like, oh, that's quite funny actually. 
I need to go back and have a look at my notes, but they're so generic because I That's do have the, the point. Ta- I've got the little cassette tape from when we went to that place in Bath. Mm. But Maybe. I do think that was probably the last time I went to a psycho psychic psycho. Maybe one episode we should just play that tape and, and take <laughs> the piss out of all the things they're it, saying. That would be funny. Actually, I'm gonna put a little note down to see if I can find a way of listening to that because it would be very interesting. Hmm. I reckon if you could yes. find a cassette player, that would do it. Or a Walkman. Yeah, that, that'll be hard. Oh, actually, I do know where a cassette player is because one of my children has one, an old one. I'm going to put that down. <laughs> I uh, think the I point is, and I'm not saying everyone who says that they're a psychic and communes with the dead and all the rest of it are consciously lying and codding people. I am. But I would say that people who go to them are open to suggestion and looking for in information or answers or a response or whatever, which makes you much more uh, likely to be a mark is all I'm saying. Right. Okay. So then in 1922 in Springfield. Oh, no. Of course. Here we find ourselves again. Of course. Which one? Missouri. All roads lead to Springfield. Springfield, Every Missouri. Missouri, not Illinois. Missouri. Not Oregon. Not Oregon. Not Oregon. No, not Oregon or Illinois. I don't think we've been to Springfield, Missouri. I think there's a new one for I think so too. New Springfield. He stole $10,000, which at the time, sorry, in today's money, was over a million bucks from a bank after posing as a wealthy businessman looking for a site for his next chemical plant. In June 1924, in Salina, Kansas, he pulled a similar scam. This time posing as Baron von Lustig, seeking a property. He ended up taking a thousand banks from a community uh, bank, which was about 150. Sorry, did I say a thousand banks? A thousand bucks. (laughs) You know how I started on Limu allegedly? Well, actually, I'm drinking Shiraz and it's beautiful and it's going down a treat. Nice. However, hence the thousand banks. He ended up taking a thousand bucks from the community bank, which in today's money is about one hundred and fifty thousand bucks. Because community bank, so I'm you know, not okay with it being a community yeah, bank. Yeah, 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 yeah. Naughty man. Yeah. Why so, would it be different to any other bank? Well, because it's uh, owned by it's the community, the so he's. Money. Yeah, you know, if it was like the ANZ yeah. bank. Or, yeah, but still, if it's my money and you're. If my bank, if it was my money and it was in a community bank, or my money and it was in a bank bank, it's still my money. Yeah, but I'm like still getting ripped off. The, so don't feel too bad for the them. big four in Australia rob bad. people all the time, and so you know, if someone robs someone <laughs> back, so be it. Uh, that's that's <laughs> I, less of I a crime than if it's a community bank, I guess, is what I'm saying. Good chat. Good chat. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> still. It's like Robin Hood. If you rob from the rich and give to the poor, that's okay. But if you rob from the poor who all happen to put go to the same bank and therefore they don't get it back, that's not okay. Well, it's an interesting point you make because eventually he basically says the same thing, which I never stole from anyone who couldn't afford it, who wasn't wealthy and wasn't free. Well, I'm calling yeah, out he make, crap he makes now the... with the community bank. All right. He's a truth well, stretcher, dirty truth stretcher. The, can I just He's ask you? He's a true, absolute truth stretcher. Can the two of you please get your notebooks out and make yes. notes about things that you want to refer to in the sentencing later? And that, that could be one of them. He's, a, he's an ideas man. He's an ideas man, isn't he? Dirty truth stretcher. And in 1925 he took his family. I don't think a true – I just looked up true stretcher. It's not a thing. You've made that I up. I called that out. Uh, <laughs> I also called out um, 
Pedagogy, which is actually a real word. Pedagogy is a real word. Truth truth stretcher. Yeah. Truth stretcher. It's a thing now. I made it up. It's a thing. Yes, I know. If enough people say it. It's yours. No, if enough people say it, it becomes a thing. It goes in the dictionary. It's like all these other stupid words. I'm not sure it's going to make it to next year's list, but I take your point. It's not as good as magic pussy. (laughs) It's like agreeance. No, and I don't. I I think, you know, things like. Oh, what social distancing and things like that went into the dictionary this year. I don't know that truth stretch is going to become the word for 2022. Ye of little faith. I'm going to do a campaign, truth stretcher, the new new, uh, thing for liar. The Pantone colour for 2020. Liar slash bullshitter. uh, Truth stretcher. Can we get um, (laughs) like a soothsayer? Are we in agreement with that? Like every it time you say it, it's like truth say and, and you keep saying truth stretcher like it's some ye yoldy word. It's like you, know, you have made that up. You have made truth stretcher soothsayer. Every time you say it, it sounds like you. It's like it, she's thinking of something else. Like it is truth stretcher. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. I probably have made that, but I still like it. I love I'm it. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I'm going with Excellent call out though. All right, all right. Um, <laughs> we've gone through, like, the, the money-making machine was a pretty major con of his. Yeah. Uh, but he had plenty of good ideas. And in 1925, he took his family back to Paris, so he had a daughter and a wife by this time, and he instigated his most famous con. <gasps> and if you were a con man in Paris in 1925, what would be your swindle? Condoleezza Rice. Is Clarky? Is it Condoleezza Rice, his <laughs> most famous con? <laughs> that was that was another um, Little Britain joke, wasn't yeah. it? The, I was going to say Little Britain or Catherine Tate's. One morning, Neville. Double cheese. Oh, it might have been Catherine, Catherine Tate. Catherine Tate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So good. <laughs> there you go. Good old Cathy Tate. We love her. Mm. She is brilliant. Does it have something to do with automobiles, Schmitty? No, it doesn't. But it. thank you for trying. Anyone, anyone else got any ideas? Uh, religion. It's too obvious. But the Eiffel Tower, the Eiffel Tower, something to the. Eiffel oh, Tower. you got it. You got it, Carla. Oh, you're no, so Carla's smart. Carla's got the Eiffel Tower. Swanee no, is a genius. Oh, I, well, there is that. There is and that. a shifty, <laughs> shifty <laughs> bird. The, She's not a truth stretcher. I was making the um, London Bridge. Ah. <laughs> I'm, not a, sold the I'm not a truth Or a soothsayer. A spooth stretcher. It's the only thing that I could think of that was obviously Parisian. No, you're absolutely right. So there. setting up in the Hotel de Crillon. Wow. Lustig went to work creating brochures, setting up a business meetings in Bordeaux, infiltrating a government department and created a fake office in the basement of the hotel by bribing the staff. And it sort of reminds me of companies with fake websites, Facebook pages and that who scam people now. So, you know, yeah. one would argue his legacy lives on. <laughs> so he partnered with a colleague and conman known as Dapper Dan. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. He's travelled forward in time. <laughs> <laughs> Dapper Dan. Dan Andrews. He'd met in the US and also travelled... No, don't pick on Uncle Dan. Oh, wasn't like pe- Dapper's Dan. not a... I think there's like a Gucci DJ called Dapper Dan. Yeah, Dapper's not a offensive word. No, but this Dapper Dan's a shifty con man and let, well, let's not Well, you hadn't said that bit. I was just saying a Dapper bit. He is right. Dapper Dan is like a Gucci um, like influencer. There's this black guy who... Influencer. Uh, it's in, like, in hip-hop and rap. I was like, 
Well, well, he's a designer, but I've heard of Dapper Dan. I wonder if that's where he got his name. Well, I hate from. to tell him he ain't the first Dapper Dan. No, well, I'm thinking maybe he's anyway, heard of this guy. The last. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. So he met him in the USA, yeah. and he and he travelled with him again on a cruise line with his family. And but the family were pretty much unaware, like the wife and kids were unaware that he installed a false wall. Unaware that they that he was Daddy a is a truth man. stretcher. Yeah. That he was a, Daddy is a truth stretcher. He was a truth stretcher. They didn't know he was a truth stretcher. That's right. It's a mystic art. So he poses. <laughs> is. Daddy is a truth stretcher. So this guy was posing as a business associate. So after meticulously whittling down eleven targets to one mark, they executed the sting. I'm using all this language for you. That, it's really that's good. so good. It's so good. Posing as a put-upon and slightly corrupt government official, Lustig prepared a contract for sale for André Poisson, a.k.a. Andrew Fish. I was going to say Poisson yep. Fish, yes. Mr Fish, a Parisian scrap dealer for the Tour Eiffel. Yep. As you said, Carla, he sold the guy the Eiffel Tower. <gasps> as you no doubt know, the Tour Eiffel was erected... <laughs> as a temporary structure for the Exposition Universelle de 1889, because I don't know how to say that in French or even with a fake French accent. And by 1925, it had fallen into a state of disrepair and some of the populace wanted it removed. Others wanted it renovated. And Lustig saw this as a great opportunity to set up this whole false sale. And it seems odd, but actually, when you, if you think about it, it was quite plausible at the time. You know, like it was like oh. the... Um, what do we call it here? The, you know, the wheel that they've just recently sold? Melbourne Eye? Melbourne, Melbourne know, the, Star. Was it, is it Melbourne Star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've never even heard of that. It was like the London Eye, but let's, yeah, let's yeah. argue it was placed in the wrong place and, and it had problems from the start. Anyway, you could imagine some people said, that's shit. Other people said, that's amazing. And this yeah, person yeah, yeah. comes in and says, oh, well, it's my job to sell it and, you know, whatever. They set out the terms and conditions for sale, and on the thirteenth of May, nineteen twenty-five, the fake uh, in the fake conference room of the Hotel de Crillon, they sold the erection <laughs> to Fish for a, <laughs> for a certified check for one million two hundred thousand francs, which was eight million dollars in today's money. That's a lot for an erection. Uh, yeah, it's the most expensive erection I've ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> To quote one of the people I spoke about earlier, and I can't remember which one wrote this, this was a Wednesday morning and Poisson requested a 48 hours, sorry, requested 48 hours in which to raise the cash. There was some question of him needing to put his family home on Avenue Montagneux up for collateral against a bank loan. So this guy's, you know, hocking everything. And this was all perfectly acceptable, said Lustig, 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 sorry. Poisson later remarked that the seller's utmost courtesy throughout the transaction served only to aggravate the final horror of the scene. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what could it be? Of course, the Parisian government were not selling the tower for scrap and Mr Fish, having realised he'd been swindled, returned to the hotel to discover the conference room <laughs> was a closet in the basement and no one knew anything about Lustig, who had run off to Vienna by that time, staying at the Hotel Imperial under one of his 47 aliases. Mr Fish, embarrassed at the con, didn't report it to police. Eight million bucks. 
Gee, he didn't oh, afford it. No. Rich much? Well, but he wasn't. He had to hock his family home. Anyway, the best bit about that. Well, it sounds like he was rich, but. Yeah, you know, rich, but asset himself. rich. Yeah. Asset rich, not cash rich. Yeah. 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 The best bit about that particular swindle is that he had the enormous kahunas to return to Paris and do it again. He sold no. the Eiffel Tower twice. No. He's no. unbelievable. Girl crush, sorry. His second mark wasn't quite as embarrassed or silly and did dob him into the police, but he'd already got on the lamb by then. Do you like I'm using on the lamb now? I've got all these expressions. Yeah. That I don't know. What's that one? On the lamb, you know, lamb. running away, uh, on the run. No, I don't on know On the that run. One. On the lamb is, you know. Um, yeah. Never heard it's it. It's an American I, I for being on the no, run. I've yeah. heard it. I've not heard it, no. Well, I you that's, it. that's two against one according to Schmidty's maths from earlier. Um, Pedagogy, on the lamb, Mark. So many learnings in today's episode. Oh, it's incredibly informative. Don't buy landmarks <laughs> that aren't for sale. That's right. <laughs> Whilst the money box and the tower sales are by far the most famous of his cons, my personal favourite is the one I'll finish on. This you haven't got to your favourite yet. Woohoo! Right, so in 1925, the man with steel balls, as I like to call him, Count Victor Lustig. No, not punching for him. No, you'll hurt your hands. That will hurt you. That's right. (laughs) Ran a con on none other than Al Capone. Oh, yeah, that's good. (laughs) It was early in Capone's career. He was 26 at the time, and Lustig arranged to meet him at the Hawthorne Hotel in Cicero near Chicago. Pop, squish, six, Uh uh-oh, Cicero. Is that another famous quote that I should know? What is that? He had it coming. He had it coming. Oh, he oh, had it coming all oh. along. Yes, oh. it's from Chicago. Oh. Oh, sorry, haven't sorry. seen I that either. Took me a moment. Oh my god, Paul. Oh my god. Sheldon <laughs> workshop over there. <laughs> Who? Me or Clarky? <laughs> yeah, Clarky. It, it's, it's, like, it's it's everything. Everything's a revelation. In terms what? of pop culture, I'm a desert. I can't believe. You. Anyway. I can believe you don't know it, but I'm shocked at that one. He convinced Capone to invest in a get-rich-quick scheme, promising to double his $50,000, bucks, and this is in like 19-something. I can't even do the math, but it's shit tons of money, right? In 60 days or less. Some weeks later, he returned telling Capone it didn't work out and he gave him the money back. Sorry about that. You know, I lost everything. And Capone said, are you broke? And he goes, yeah. And so feeling sorry for him. Capone gives him 5000 bucks, which is still worth, you know, shit tons. Not as many yeah. shit tons, but 10% of shit tons is still shit tons, right? Now, there's speculation that he had second thoughts about taking the whole amount and running away with it, but some think that the lo- it was a long con and it was intended to get 5000 bucks out of Capone in the first place. Either way, he got the money for nothing and he didn't sleep with the fishes and he doesn't have new concrete shoes. So it was all good. For him, did you at least get my gangster references there? Yes, oh, did. Yes, yes, right. yes. I was, I was kind of, I was thinking about the long con though, and I thought that was quite interesting. So he was setting himself up yeah. to sort of get something bigger out. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. So he had his trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So dirty rotten scoundrels is a perfect example of a long con. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, yes. 
1930, Lustig goes into a partnership with two men from Nebraska, a pharmacist, William Watts, and chemist, Tom Shaw, to conduct a large-scale... He gets around. He does. To Mm. conduct a large-scale counterfeiting operation. This is the beginning of the end for him. Watts and Shaw engraved the plates that would be used to print the counterfeit dollar bills while Lustig organised a ring of couriers to distribute the forgeries, ensuring that they were kept in the dark regarding the production of the counterfeits. The operation managed to inject thousands of dollars of counterfeit money, nicknamed Lustig money, to the US economy each month for the next five years, though the increasing amount entering circulation eventually drew the attention of federal agents as it was threatening to break the economy. And also, this was in the period of the Great Depression by now, so we've moved into the early 30s. So it was a massive deal, and they actually called him public enemy number one. Going back to a much earlier statement I made about him being a bit of a horn dog and cheating on his wife, because oh. oh. he, he, he was linked with a bunch of women, he was actually having an um, a affair or he had a mistress called Billy May. And now Billy May was a infamous woman of the time who was a madam running her own prostitution ring and he then started to have an affair or shag his business partner tom shaw's also his mistress sorry it's complicated but basically do that again (laughs) he started to have it off (laughs) to put it in plain terms he was having it off with tom shaw's girlfriend slash mistress and his own mistress, who was actually a madam running a prostitution ring herself, got yep. wind of it. Billy May. Billy May. Yep, yep. And she got very yep. angry about this. And hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she rang the police in an anonymous call, although somehow we know it was her, and dobbed him into the authorities. <laughs> and on... The 10th of May in 1935, he was arrested in New York and charged with counterfeiting. Although you say, he openly admitted. Yeah. When you say it was an anonymous call, did she say like, hi, it's Millie Bay here. Um, I just want to report a crime. <laughs> or Billy may not. Billy might. She might have said, hi, it's May West here. <laughs> <laughs> Billy May West. I've always said an orgasm and what was the other thing? A cigar or something. I can't remember, but uh, Mae West had this idea about longevity was driven by an orgasm a day and something else. Anyway, I digress. So he openly (laughs) admitted to his partner's involvement in the operation, but he he himself feigned ignorance on the matter. I don't know anything about it. I'm just a lovely aristocrat from Europe. However, his refusal to disclose information on key information found in his possession proved to be his undoing. And it was later found to open a locker in Times Square subway station containing $51,000 in counterfeit bills and the plates on which they'd been printed. 51000 was, I can't even, wow. again, shit tons of shit tons of money at this point in time. The day before his trial, Lustig managed to escape from the Federal House of Detention. Oh, I love this. God's sakes. Yeah, because he escaped. I told you earlier, I didn't go into detail because we can't do this for yeah. 48 hours, but he escaped about 40 times. He was a classic, right? <laughs> he escaped from the Federal House of Detention in New York City by faking illness and then used a rope he made of sheets and he climbed out of the building 
As he descended the walls, some passerbys noticed him. I love this. This is my favourite bit. So he pulls out a rag and starts cleaning the windows like he's a window cleaner. Oh, <laughs> All he's hanging off a sheet rope. Genius. In his, in his prisoner outfit, I'm just cleaning the windows, nothing to see here. And off he goes. And, yes, it wasn't new. He'd escaped many, many a time. He was recaptured, sadly, in my opinion, 27 days later in Pittsburgh, and after pleading guilty at trial, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison on Alcatraz Island oh. for his original charge, oh. and then he got another five years for <laughs> escaping prison. Escape. Yeah. <laughs> By December the 7th, 1946, Lustig had made a staggering 1,192 medical requests and filed 507 prescriptions. The prison guards believed he was faking because he was, as we now know, a truth stretcher (laughs) and that his illness was part of an escape plan. They even found torn bed sheets in his cell, signs of his expert rope making. According to medical reports, Lustig was inclined to magnify physical complaints and constantly complaining of real and imaginary ills. Yeah, hypochondriac. He was transferred to a secure medical facility in Springfield, again, Missouri, and we returned to Springfield at the age of 57, where the doctors soon realised he wasn't faking. On March 11, 1947, at the age of 57, he died from complications arising from pneumonia. To quote Spike Milligan, I told you I was ill. The boy had cried wolf. Mm. But you don't have pneumonia over a sustained period of time, do you? Wouldn't that be a fairly acute kind of scenario? No, you're right. I, I, th- I, I think he probably was a bullshit artist for a long time. And it was the, it was the boy who cried wolf. Well, totally. you say bullshit artist. I say truth stretcher. Truth stretcher. He stretched that truth one too many times. I do like this. On his death certificate, a clerk wrote for his occupation that he was an apprentice salesman. Oh. <laughs> At the age of 57 when he died. Now, he did leave behind a bit of a legacy that's been attributed to him. It's known as the Ten Commandments for Con Men. And I think in this, there's a bit of there's a little bit of uh, wisdom for all of us. So I'd like you to listen to this, both of you. Or, uh, sorry, Far all away. three of I'm you intrigued. and Tony sitting next to me who's very quiet. Be a patient listener. It is this. Not fast talking that gets a con man his coup. Never look bored. Right. I'm out. (laughs) Wait for the other person to reveal. You're out on this one too, I can assure you. In fact, you're out on the next six, I think. This one, wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Yeah, I'm out. (laughs) Number four, yep, let the other person reveal religious views and then have the same ones. Yes, I know. You're out. Out. Five, hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. <laughs> Six, never discuss illness unless unless some special concern is shown. Seven, never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you everything eventually. Never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. That's you, Paul, isn't it? Mm-mm. No, I think my importance is not obvious, nor quiet, uh, nor nor even uh, there. What about never be untidy? Ah, oh, no, always. Yeah. 
And I think we could all say we're all out on the last one. Never be drunk. What? <laughs> well, because you're con man. Oh, you got to be focused one. on everything, right? you got to be reading the room. Yeah. Yep. Even if I wanted to be, I couldn't be a con yeah. man. Yeah, no, well, no, no. That's quite a common thing, isn't it, when people do want something of somebody else to ensure that the other person is getting more to drink and pretending that they're drinking. A lot of them will pretend they're drinking. Absolutely. Uh, that's quite common. Yeah, me too. Did you learn that in um, con lady school? When you Cert went to three. Cert three, well, truth that. stretcher. <laughs> I think it should be have, Cert three, truth stretchery. Life, to be honest. You've seen it in real life. I have. I have. I Well, I don't want to go no, into No, that's okay, but I think it's fair to say yes. never from me. I have seen some. Never from no, me. No, no, I have no, 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 never no, no, held, no. held back. Held back and getting pissed in front of you, don't you worry. No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. I've just, I have seen in, in, in real life, yeah. I've seen um, a particular person. Like on Law and Order? <laughs> yes, like that. <laughs> um, who would ensure that everybody was having a great time, everybody was more than had their glass full, but that person didn't. And then when it would come time to do certain things and pay bills and whatever else, Nobody realised just who had been in control and how the situation had been manipulated. So I think that's quite a common thing about getting people drunk and sort of using them up, having them loosened. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's a law and order moment that we had there. <laughs> yes. That is the story of Lord Mountjoy, Count Lustig Robert Miller, the fifth. Well, well yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's got so many names, we don't know who he is. Exactly. So, what are your thoughts on his crimes? And were the crimes well, just for him or for the other people? Nice to see that everybody that nobody got killed. No one got killed. That's nice. What do we think motivated him? Do we know that? What's his sort of was it just that he was actually really quite clever and could be didn't really want to work too hard and just wanted a quick fix? I wouldn't say he didn't work hard. I, I think he That's he worked true. quite hard at his craft. Quick money. I honestly think that there would have been something about well who knows, right? But at the end of the day, in prison records, he said himself that he came from a very poor background. But earlier with... But he didn't. Yeah, well, it's a bit confusing because when he goes to the Sorbonne in France, his father says, <laughs> you need to go to the Sorbonne. So I don't. there was no evidence that he was on a scholarship. I did try... That's not struggle town exactly, exactly. Is it? And I, I mean... was trying to look up whether or not... Well, I don't know. Fran- France, France, sorry, in uh, 19... 19- Oh eight, would that have been free education? Oh. So was that he? He might have had to be very bright, but it doesn't mean it was a a paid education. But I mean, I think it's one of those things where you know the, the families that did go to university, the versus those that didn't even entertain it. You know, what I mean, that's true. Truly, you know, when you are poor, when you, you know, you might be brilliant, but it's not even on your radar. Yeah, if it was on their radar, it suggests that they were at least. Yeah, every some... source I read said that the father pushed him to Social. go to the university. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me like his motivation, I mean, obviously he got money, but it almost sounds like he was addicted to conning people and he got a real joy out of seeing what kind of stories he could yeah. come up with and then whether he could actually get away with it. I think there was a lot yeah. of thrill-seeking with him, yeah. but <laughs> You'd like to think yeah. so. Yeah, and maybe a little bit of Robin Hoodery as well with oh. selling the Eiffel Tower. to Lustig. Rich people. God, stop it, Schmitty. You sound mm. like you're... 
I know. Yeah. Mm. But the horn. Oh, the truth stretcher. Mm. Show me your tutti fruity necklace. Yeah. <laughs> put it up. Put it up my alley. Oh. You, could get, you could get some serious voice work there. Uh, Count Lustig, are you really selling that big French erection? <laughs> Tour Eiffel, of course. <laughs> Goodness. So obviously he was a con man and a criminal, uh, but what are your thoughts about the people around him? Oh, so there's a couple of things. I, I mean, I think let's call out he's, he's obviously a genius in the way that he plans and executes his cons, I think. You Me know, too. Sell, selling landmarks, <laughs> I think, is not an easy thing to do. Not that I've ever tried, but I'm happy to just assume that it's not easy to do. I reckon you could probably have a crack at selling the giant koala or the big pineapple <laughs> or, you know, one of those it, classic Australian it, landmarks. It, not quite the Tour Eiffel, but, you know. It would be remarkable, though, if you found a buyer for it. <laughs> A mark, sorry, I think yep. is the correct term. It would. Find uh, a mark. Yeah, yeah, I would be impressed if you found a mark, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, there's, there's obviously some things he, some skills that maybe are the ones, hopefully they're the ones that um, you're attracted to, not the fact that he actually committed all those crimes. So when I was doing this research for this case, I went and I had a chat with my mum about it because my grandfather was 10 years younger than Count Von Baron Lustig, Mountjoy, Miller, whatever his name was. And my grandfather, when he came to Australia after the Hungarian Revolution, was this incredibly sophisticated, you know, real European gentleman type. And not like my dad. My dad was much more rough. But uh, my grandfather was old, old world type European. And that's what I see. When I say I've got a crush, and that's why I say it's, it sounds weird, but when, that's what I see in this guy. I see this this incredibly suave, good influencer, like not in a bullshit Instagram fashion, in a in a real every interaction that he has is really influencing people, getting what he wants for sure. But anyway, when my pa died, my mother and father received calls from various women who had lent my grandfather money. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, whoops. And, they, 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 and as, when I said to mum, I said, I'm doing this case about this con man who, you know, took money. And he, she goes, no, 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 they wanted to give him the money. And I'm like, well, yeah, so did the people that uh, Baron von Lustig, blah, blah, blah. They thought they wanted to give him the money too. And mum was like, no, no, it's not quite the same. I'm like, mm, I don't know that it's not the same. Anyway, we paid it back. But maybe there's a part of me that says it was a thing at the time and fair play. Don't know. Mm. I'm not saying he wasn't a criminal. Yes, but it's like hustling. But I would say the people who he conned, not all of them, not the community bank, I agree with that, and maybe not the church, but the people he conned wanted to be conned in some ways or they would never have parted Ooh. with that money. In often, often the case is that where Schmidt is saying people want to be conned, it's not so much that they want to be conned, but they they so desperately want more. Mm. It's just their greed that that's what sets them apart. It's like they will allow themselves to be led to to you know when things don't when the feel, things feel too good to be true or whatever else. It's like well, you know, but I really I really want the money. I really you know. So they'll they'll go with it. They'll take risks and they'll put themselves in situations where they're not you know, able to check things out or whatever else because they think that the the gain is worth the, you know, the risk, I guess, and that's greedy. You know, you and I know individuals who have put themselves into situations where they have literally been conned in in, in the modern world 
because they want to get yeah. rich quick. They'll go for yeah. any pyramid scheme. They'll go into anything that sounds good. And it's not that I don't. I, I, it doesn't mean I don't sympathise, but I don't sympathise, actually. Yeah, yeah, I yeah no, no, but that, that. I think you've got to have some kind of self awareness when it comes to that stuff. I, I agree with that in the context of, you know, paying $800,000 for a box with a few wheels and knobs and stuff on it to make money. I mean, that's. To there, make there's money. a fair bit of, yeah. you know. That, I'm not, I'm not overly um, sympathetic about that. It's things like, you know, I'll go and get your jewellery cleaned and then I nick off with it or installing a false wall and, like, it's that's just plain theft. It's not, there's nothing, it's, it's not a, a gambling thing where someone comes in and, and makes a bet. And, and although even that I have a bit of a problem with because you're telling someone that, you know, you'd reasonably walk into that room and go, yeah, I'm going to p- place a bet on the horses. and There are no fair odds. The odds yeah, are, are no completely fair odds. stacked totally against rich. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I think Just like going to a casino now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, correct, but, but probably worse because, you know, you go and play the pokers, you know the ch- chances of you winning are incredibly low, but there is a chance that you'll win or you go to the horses and you bet on a horse and, Generally speaking, you know, there's a chance and you, there's odds and all that sort of it's stuff. It's an but, odd of one out of however many horses. Yeah, yeah. One of them's going to come first, right? Correct. Yeah, but yeah, if, yeah. if, you know, you're betting off track and there's actually no race going on or whatever the, the con is in that regard, I, you know, whilst we say there's no, you know, no one was hurt or murdered necessarily. I didn't say there was no crime. I didn't say Well, no, no, no but what I'm saying is that potentially no the, the impact no. to somebody who may not, Maybe in really um, tough circumstances, going maybe if I can win this, it'll change my circumstances. Who then loses it and potentially goes and offs themselves, or goes back and you know beats their family or whatever that might yeah. be. There's there's a yeah. big to me. A, a, I have a big problem with what he's done, and and I get that there's some amazing cons, and I really like. So I wanted to point out his his genius to start with. But the reality is, he's a shit mm. bloke, and yeah, I'm I'm not okay with him. He's not a truth stretcher. He's a shit no, bloke. No, you don't have to be. <laughs> Taking advantage of people. He is a truth stretcher and a shit bloke. He's yeah. both. And, and the bloke who... He's a true stretcher who's Basically, got a push on for marks. A truth stretcher is just a liar, isn't it, really? Yes, but The bloke absolutely. who paid 800000 for a moneymaker is a gullible shit bloke, not a truth stretcher. He's... And clearly, like, come on, mate. Because that's a crime in itself going to want to produce the money. So, you know, he's... Paying money yeah, exactly. to commit a crime. A well, if you get duped in that process, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Swanee, what are your thoughts? Sentencing. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Clarky. Give him a sentence. Go on, smash oh. him. Oh, oh, no. oh yes. smash Throw him in the can. Throw at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Stu kicking the can. Take that cruiser. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's um, maybe that's going to be my sentence. That You know how you have kids kicking cans down the street i'm gonna sentence yeah, him yep. to peasant world as the can that the kids are gonna <laughs> kick up and down the street oh. and he can just continually get kicked over and over and over again um you know his his pneumonia i think was also a good sentence and i'm comfortable that he got that i'm happy with his years on alcatraz <laughs> um but karma karma got him in the end but i wouldn't mind a bit of can kicking action for him Certainly no nut punching because that's only going to hurt everyone's hands. Absolutely. Yeah, because he's got balls of steel. Exactly. Yeah, and they're probably right. spiky as well. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> We'd have to ask his wife. Or Billy May. Mm, mm. Oh. 
or the <laughs> other one. And a bunch of like Hollywood starlets, people. but I can't remember who they oh, were. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, that's good because what I'm thinking of doing with him is I'm going to take him back to his carpentry roots <laughs> and I'm going to give him a job in Bunnings where he just has to do standard retail. He's not allowed to take advantage of anybody. He can't do any of these cons. He just has to work hard for a dollar. And he has to have an honest day's work, but the honest day work is for, you know, for a turn, until he dies. And can he, he doesn't touch money in that process, does he? No, nothing, nothing. He's just yeah. working hard. He's customer service. You know, he's got those skills, but Stacking he can't shelves. influence anybody. He can't manipulate. He's just got to be an honest, hard worker. So he can and, stand uh, at the saw in Bunnings correct. and tell Tony and I that he can't do cut walls. more than three cuts because the saw will get too hot. Anyway. I take it that's something that's actually really happened to you guys. Yeah, I think that's obviously, that's obviously something that's obviously happened to you. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I that, think that That he, sounds um, like a little bit of truth stretching right there. Bunnings Footscray. Yes. Oh. No, I just think he needs to... Uh, Bunnings Footscray. <laughs> tone it down and stop trying to pretend that he's somebody he's not. And just, just an honest day's work, but many, 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 many And have days. some respect for other people, Yeah, dirty man. Well, I'm sure you'll get that with dealing with the general public at Bunnings. Yes. That's true. All right. Cool. So I... Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for your input, both of you. I will tell you what my <laughs> Merci. Is. Yes. So Tell I you. think that Victor should put his incredible brain to a positive use. And so I'm going to sentence him to a career working with the police to prevent crime as with his understanding of people and their psychology and how easy it is to con them, and his incredible work ethic, let's face it, put in the right direction, could be very, very valuable. I'm sure he'd have an excellent clearance rate, Clarky. And as we learned from the our, last episode... Um, our dear friend Reggie would absolutely sent, uh, suggest that working with the police is a punishment, I think. Other people may not say it that way, but yes... She might, but uh, but more importantly, we all know now from last week's episode that a clearance rate is very important, and I think that he could get his little points, his little personal points from a very good clearance rate. All right, so. Well done, well, Trini. I thought it was kind of fun. It was interesting. I enjoyed it. And different for us. Some corn capers. I know. A catalogue of Catalo- corn capers. Thank you, thank you. catalogue of yeah. yeah, we started with BBC and we ended with CCC. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yes, I love a good alliteration yeah. and an acronym. Thank you. All right. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, thank you very much, guys, and I miss you already. Miss you. Arrivederci. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Bye, everyone. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Buonanotte. Ciao, ciao. bello. Oh, why did we get all continental? It must have been the whole aristocratic bloke. thanks for listening to trial by wine you can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com please rate review and subscribe to trial by wine on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like to support us you can become a patron at www.patreon.com trial by wine or visit our website www.trialbywine.com to donate to us Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com. Music